Dressed in an ottoman red robe and turban, the strange machine doll moves its knight across the chessboard towards its opponent's queen. Checkmate, it signals, raising its wooden hands. On the other side of the table, one of Europe's most feared rulers, Napoleon Bonaparte, cocks his head, confused. He'd arrived at Vienna Schomburg Palace that very evening to challenge the infamous Mechanical Turk, as this life-sized machine model of a human was popularly known. How was it possible that his device had won not one but two chess games against him already? Defeated, he sighed and conceded, admitting that though its uncanny mustache and mischievous wooden smile were disturbing, the Turk's skill was unparalleled. Built by Hungarian inventor Wolfgang von Kempelen in the late 18th century, in an effort to impress Empress Maria Theresa of Austria, the Mechanical Turk was the first machine to successfully outsmart humans. For over 84 years, until its demise in a fire in 1854, it defeated illustrious historical figures like Prussian King Frederick the Great, Benjamin Franklin, and writer Edgar Allan Poe. But how did an 18th century inventor develop an artificial intelligence over 100 years before the creation of the first digital computer? The truth is, we've since learned he didn't. A human was always hiding beneath the machine. Today, the opposite has come to pass. We constantly wonder whether humans online are actually machines. We're asked to prove our humanity by filling out forms with boxes full of stoplights and trucks. So, will artificial intelligence surpass and end humanity? Or can we learn to coexist with this incredible technology? I'm Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the Pictet Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. If you like our episodes, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. It is not an understatement to say that artificial intelligence may be the most important technology human beings will ever create. Its impact has already been felt in the world of retail, healthcare, transport, cybersecurity, advertising, and many more industries. And this is only set to grow over the course of the 21st century. Can it be employed to enhance the quality of our lives? Or will it pose an existential risk to humanity? Today we are joined by three very distinguished speakers. Stuart Russell, professor of computer science at UC Berkeley and the author of Human Compatible, AI and the Problem of Control. Marcus Dusautoy, Simoni Chair of the Public Understanding of Science at the University of Oxford and author of The Creativity Code. And Matias Gonzalez, Head of Investment Specialists Middle East and Africa, at Pictet Wealth Management. This conversation is moderated by Anjali Bastian Pilai, Senior Product Specialist at Pictet Asset Management. To open the discussion, I'd like from each of you to give us your individual opinion on how artificial intelligence has been revolutionary. Is this like as important as the industrial revolution or, or is it something completely different and unprecedented? I'll start with Stuart. So when we assess the importance of AI, we should think not about the technology, the, the piece of it that we've done so far, 
Um, it's a work in progress. We have a long, long way to go. But if and when uh, we create technology that exceeds human capability in all major aspects, then that will be truly revolutionary because our whole civilization is built on our intelligence. And if we have access to a lot more, we could have a much better civilization or we could destroy our own civilization much more effectively than we've done in the past. Well, I would say, you know, this technology has been sort of bubbling away in the background for decades, but we've called those kind of AI winters. And I do think something significant happened um, sort of five, six years ago, where the idea of machine learning, where code can learn, mutate and change, which actually was an old idea, but somehow we suddenly have a world, a rich data world, where it can suddenly sort of learn and become something new. So I think something significant did happen five or six years ago, and we're seeing, beginning to see the uh, sort of impact of that. But I, I think we we perhaps need to cool down this AI heat wave that seems to be uh, washing over us, because I do think there is a huge amount of hype. So I think just as in the dot-com era, everybody put dot-com on the end of their uh, company to inflate their value. I think we're seeing the same thing. I think my toothpaste is created by AI. And frankly, I just somehow uh, don't trust that too much. So so I, I think, you know, there are really exciting things happening, but I do think we need to be careful about the the smattering of AI over absolutely everything at the moment uh, and really test, you know, what is just actually a bit of statistics on a bit of data and what is truly exciting use of this new technology. I guess from my side um, and for many of us in, in the modern world, everything that we do is about efficiency and information. Right? Efficiency to do things better and to do faster and information to innovate and make the best informed decisions. And every that applies to every aspect of our daily life because artificial intelligence does help us with many aspects of this. So, I mean, I think the point I would like to make here is that the, the rate of change we are seeing in AI is unprecedented and it's growing exponentially. I mean, we're joined here by two experts that are going to give a lot more color to it. But Angela, you mentioned the Industrial Revolution. Industrial Revolution brought mass production. It brought automation and people were generally scared about losing their, their jobs and becoming obsolete. But the reality is humankind, we evolve, we adapt and we prosper. So today, as an example, shoppers have more choice than ever. An estimated four trillion was spent in 2020. That's almost one third more than the previous year before. So uh, there are have been advancements and things continue to move quick. I mean, in 2020, to give you another statistic, it was a breakthrough year for conversational AI. And what I mean by conversational AI, it's the ability for AI to have a proper understanding and conversation to generate language with human-like accuracy. Smart speakers in, in just this last year answered over 100 billion commands. That's 75% more than 2019. So I don't know the stats yet for 2021, and I'm not a betting person, but if I were to make a calculated guess, those numbers are going to continue to increase in size. Even though AI is an inspiring technology, we all agree here. How do you define it, Stuart? So simply put, it means making machines intelligent. And traditionally, what we meant by that is machines whose actions can be expected to achieve their objectives. And that's the way we built AI systems. We specify an objective, uh, a goal to achieve, a, a destination to reach, uh, some quantity to maximize. And then we have algorithms that are designed 
to take any such objective and find a solution uh, and then execute the solution. So it might be finding a way to take you to the airport. Uh, it might be a way to uh, increase the value of your portfolio. It might be a way to generate more advertising revenue from a search engine or a social media platform. So the technology development has been going on now for more than 60 years. And we've been trying to increase the breadth of objectives that we can handle, the breadth of environments we can deal with, uh, including environments that contain humans, which are usually the most complicated ones. And I think you're right, uh, the, you know, Marcus is right that we've seen a significant step forward over the last decade based on ideas that were developed actually in the 1990s around uh, deep convolutional neural networks. But various algorithmic improvements, the availability of larger data sets and more powerful machines meant that, you know, it's, it's as if we had a Ferrari and we were driving around in first gear at 25 miles an hour and wondering why this wasn't such a great car. And then someone said, well, why don't you put it into, you know, sixth gear? And then, oh, look, you know, zoom, off we went. Yeah. So on that point, actually, I did want to ask you how the definition has changed, right, with the cloud infrastructure, with the availability of data, especially with COVID. Can you maybe just explain a little bit about how it's changed uh, since you started over the last few decades? And then we'll go into... So I don't, I don't think the definition of AI has changed. I would say the one thing that we've dropped over the last 60 years is emulating of human beings. In the early days of AI and, and with the, uh, you know, Alan Turing's paper in 1950 that introduced this, what we call the Turing test, which was, you know, directly emulating of human behavior. I think we've dropped that because, uh, you know, humans are too messy. And if you want to do that properly, you have to be a psychologist. Uh, and do experiments with human subjects, which, you know, which require uh, approval of your institutional review board and so on and so forth. So that's become cognitive psychology, cognitive science. And AI has become really an engineering discipline with this more mathematical definition of intelligent behavior that achieves objectives. And the change in how we do AI, we've almost exclusively shifted uh, in practice to building our AI systems by a process of machine learning. So machine learning is a way of getting AI systems to improve themselves over time. And it's just turned out, as Alan Turing predicted in 1950, that this turns out to be easier than trying to write everything by hand to, to provide a whole lot of human-defined knowledge and then try to build systems that reason on top of human-defined knowledge. So, uh, my guess is, in fact, that the pendulum is going to swing back. We're in many ways reaching a plateau with what deep learning can do. And we're seeing that actually there's a reason why human beings know things. It's because if you know things, you can learn much better from much less data. And so uh, I think the next decade, uh, we're going to see the pendulum swing back. Uh, combinations of data, prior knowledge, symbolic reasoning systems uh, and deep learning. Uh, and we're still trying to figure out how to make all that work together. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, maybe if I can shift a little bit on your book, I think you've been quite a visionary and you've written a lot about the warning signals. And I think what I wanted to ask you now is what are the shortcomings of AI? I think, should we be concerned? Um, there's quite a bit in your book. I don't want to necessarily summarize the whole thing, but if you can just highlight the shortcomings of AI, and also, um, yeah, what should we be concerned about, really? 
So in 1951, uh, Alan Turing did another important piece, which is much less well known because it was never actually published. It was a lecture on the radio uh, on uh, BBC, the third program, what we call Radio 3 now. And um, uh, in that lecture, he said that once the machine thinking method had started, it would leave us far behind. We should have to expect the machines to take control. And if you think about it for even a second, you know, our intelligence is what gives us power over the world, power over all the other species on the planet, and we've managed to wipe out millions of them already. And if you create another class of entities that's more intelligent than us, then by default, one would expect that they are going to have power over us. Um, so how do we retain power over them forever uh, when they are more powerful than we are? That's the trick. And obviously, Alan Turing thought there was no solution to that problem. So that's sort of what my book is about, the human compatible. And I argue that actually, if we look carefully, we can find a way to untangle this knot. And the problem, so why is it that making AI better and better makes things worse and worse? And the answer, I think, is in the definition that I gave you earlier, machines that act so as to achieve their objectives. So what we've done is created a methodology where there's a machine over here and there's us over here, and we supply a perfectly precisely defined objective. And the problem is, what if that perfectly precisely defined objective is not complete and correct? Uh, and we call this the King Midas problem, because King Midas said, you know, I want everything I touch to turn to gold. That's a perfectly, completely defined objective. But it was the wrong one, because when he actually got what he asked for, his food and his drink and his family all turned to gold. And, you know, the story doesn't end well for him. And so that that idea, the human race has known it for thousands of years. And, and many, many cultures have similar kinds of legends. And... Um, if we do this with AI that's more powerful, more intelligent, more capable of decision-making in the real world than human beings are, and they're pursuing an objective that we have specified that uh, is incorrect, uh, you're basically setting up a conflict, a chess match between humanity uh, and the machines. And we don't want to be in that chess match when you know the future is the stake. So we have to actually get away from the standard model of AI as maximizing some fixed specified objective. So that's what the book is about. Can we replace the standard model of AI with a new model where the machines know that they don't know what the objective is? That humans have objectives, we have preferences about the future, uh, but the machine, even though it's supposed to help us with those, doesn't know what they are. And it turns out, you know, that sounds sort of counterintuitive. How could it possibly help you do something if it doesn't know what it is? But actually, you know, we do this all the time with each other, right? And we have, you know, protocols. When, when you go into a restaurant, the chef doesn't know what you want. And they have a whole protocol for finding out what you want. And sometimes you ask for things that they don't have because they run out. And, you know, sometimes, well, maybe this is not the recommended dish today and they're going to suggest something else. And so they have a whole protocol for finding out and that's how they can be helpful to you. Um, so if you take that and sort of expand it out uh, to, the, you know, the whole human race and the whole of the future, that's basically the idea. 
that the machines and the humans are going to have a continued interaction. And when the machines find out a bit more about what you want, then they can be a bit more helpful to you. And so we're, we're developing now algorithms that operate on this new basis and finding that, in fact, mathematically, we can show humans will remain in control uh, when we define things this way. Thanks. And maybe Marcus actually on a similar path, but the other side of the coin, if you want. I mean, obviously, as a mathematician and a writer, your view, especially on the creative side uh, or the capabilities, the creative capabilities of AI, you seem to be a bit more optimistic. And so my question to you uh, was more related to, do you think we can align AI with human values? Yeah, I mean, I think we've been served up a terribly dystopic kind of image of AI from Hollywood, um, which is, you know, this idea of it taking over. And I think this idea of the singularity as well is, I think, a little too one dimensional. The idea that, uh, you know, there'll be a point where AI is more intelligent than us. that That's a very one dimensional sort of view of intelligence. And I think the point is intelligence is a very multidimensional kind of landscape. And, and actually, I think AI, I would prefer to kind of translate it as alternative intelligence or augmented intelligence. The idea is it can do some things better than us and we can do some things better than the AI. And so therefore, if we can move towards a future of collaboration rather than competition, then uh, we'll be both better served. And we've already seen evidence of that in kind of a medical realm where uh, radiologists and AI together are able to spot cancers uh, uh, far more accurately than each one individually. So so my kind of um, hope is for a more collaborative sort of relationship. Matthias, uh, as head of investment specialist, um, I wanted to ask you, how has AI changed the investment landscape, really? Angelia, I, I think that's a very good question, and I hope to give a simple answer. In short, AI has definitely changed pretty much every single sector, and it will continue to influence every single sector. I mean, COVID-19 has definitely spurred many negativities in the world, but one very positive element that has come out is this catalyst for change and this catalyst for further disruption that we have seen. Whether you're looking at healthcare, biotech, retail, transportation, advertising, marketing, uh, cybersecurity, uh, even sports and even education, all of this is being influenced by artificial intelligence. So um, we need to be smart with it and we need to embrace it. Um, uh, Marcus just talked about the partnership on medical imaging, um, virtual uh, nursing assistance. That's also another partnership that's there. And there's another one that's called in, in assisted surgeries. Um, my, my father is, here's an anecdote, he, he's a plastic surgeon. And I always said to myself, if I ever get plastic surgery or some sort of reconstructive surgery for whatever reason, I would want my father and only my father to operate me. But then I was invited to a demo on some of these robotics surgeons and what they do. And it was impressive. Now, for disclaimer, I did not operate on a human being, but it was in contained environment where I was playing with rubber bands, cylinders and squares. And I was blown away by the ability of these machines to have 3D views, to have uh, this magnification of um, tenfold, to be able to have this immaculate stillness with so many limbs coming in and being able to do an operation. And some of these operations last several hours, even half a day. And the ability that they also help in a collaboration with, with the doctor and make it a safer operation, I think it's absolutely wonderful.
1964, MIT professor Joseph Weizenbaum created a simple chatterbox named Eliza, as a parody of a psychotherapy session, intending to show that discussions between humans and machines are only ever superficial. Ironically, users became entranced by its seemingly endless interest in their problems and began to attribute human feelings to it, saying it could understand them like no one else. But Eliza did not have human empathy. It only repeated inputted texts back at its users, asking them to expand on these same thoughts. Today, some machines are able to tell what we're feeling through facial recognition software. But will AI like Alexa or Siri ever be able to tell what we are truly feeling? If we can shift a little bit uh, to the human versus machine intelligence, so back to creativity and AI, I think your book, uh, Marcus, uh, The Creative Code, it examines the relationship between uh, human creativity and AI. Given the cultural legacies that we all have, um, I mean, we're all different, right? Culturally, et cetera. And, and the legacy is very important. Uh, everybody can think differently in the same context. And so how do you, do you code that? But how do you deal with that? Well, it's very interesting because in a way, I think you've tapped into exactly the definition of creativity there that I ended up using in the book, which is from psychologist Carl Rogers, that creativity is our tool to examine our different inner worlds. I mean, we're, we're very similar as a species and also very different because of our cultural historical upbringings. And so I think I would speculate that our consciousness and our creativity probably emerged at about the same time, maybe 40, 50,000 years ago, um, there was a kind of surge in both. Uh, we certainly see evidence of kind of creativity for its own sake, rather than for making tools happening then. And I think it's it was a tool that we used to examine kind of, are, uh, are you feeling this inner world that I'm feeling? What's your pain like? Is it anything like my pain? Um, I'm seeing the world in a very different way. I want to share that with you. And so let me do a painting on the wall uh, to, to kind of explore that. Now, I think that's the real power of exploring creativity in machines, because we're beginning to develop something that, you know, you could call a new species, which could be very dangerous to us, as Stuart's illustrated. But I think we are going to need tools to probe that inner world. Uh, in the past, code used to be written in a very economical way. It was very much a mathemat mathematician's domain. We liked very clean, tight code that we could see all the instructions. We don't care anymore. The amount of code that's generated out of machine learning is lines and lines. And there's no way you can examine quite why a decision is being made anymore, just in the same way as you couldn't look at our neuronal activity and, and uh, discern why somebody had made a choice. Um, so I would say there's almost, you know, certainly code hasn't become conscious yet, but I, I would uh, kind of hint that it has become subconscious. There is a decision-making process which it's the code can't articulate. We finding it very difficult to articulate why it's making decisions. So we're going to need tools to probe the the world of the the code and sort of try and understand sort of its inner world. You know, one of the great risks, and I'm sure 
both Stuart and Matthias will agree, is bias that's coming in, uh, uh, unintended bias. Uh, and what was very interesting was this idea of getting it to express itself creatively um, helped us to identify some of this bad balance, uh, bad bias. So I, I think that's uh, what's quite exciting about uh, asking something to be creative will actually serve the same role as I think our human creativity was, was which is to kind of share our inner worlds and sort of cross cultural, historical, personal boundaries. From an investment perspective, what does it mean, especially when it comes to automation, uh, when the most, or let's say these most creative jobs can be replaced? Uh, Matthias, I think I'd like your view on that. Is that a collapse of society? Is that a collapse of certain, uh, you know, uh, segments, areas? Um, I think I'd love to have your view on that. Sure. I mean, I personally do not subscribe to, to the notion of a job vacuum or, or the collapse of a society. And with high probability, don't get me wrong, I think many jobs will disappear. But at the very same time, I think so many more jobs will be created and high skilled jobs will be created. And the jobs that disappear are, are the boring ones, are the repetitive ones, are the dangerous ones, are the ones that most people don't want to do or arguably don't like to do. So I'm, I'm personally also convinced that within our, our future, our human ingenuity, our curiosity and our creativity will pave the road for a brilliant new future. So the question is, you know, if there are going to be new jobs, they have to be jobs where uh, humans have a competitive advantage over machines. And as AI progresses, that's going to be more and more difficult. Uh, you know, even jazz musician, you know, radiologist, story writer, screenwriter, you know, things that we think of as purely human, very, very safe, protected jobs may, uh, may go away. So coming back to something that Marcus said earlier, the conscious experience uh, this is, I think, an area, you know, because we we have very similar nervous systems to each other, our conscious experience uh, overlaps to an enormous extent. So uh, an example I use in the book is that, you know, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, and I, I don't know what that's like, well, I have an easy way to find out. I can just hit my own thumb with a hammer and say, ah, now I understand why you're so upset. And so we have this competitive advantage over machines, and I think we'll have that forever. They may, you know, from massive amounts of data and trying to train a predictive model, uh, learn to, you know, to grade how painful various kinds of events are, but they, they don't have the direct experience of pain. Uh, and so it's always a superficial pretense. It's not the real thing. So that means that in the future, very probably interpersonal relationship jobs where one person is working to make the lives of others better, uh, richer, more interesting, more positive, uh, to increase curiosity, to increase appreciation for art, music, literature, nature, whatever it might be. Those are the kinds of jobs where we have a competitive advantage. And, and that's how I see the future. But if you ask, where are those jobs right now and how much do they pay? Right. Well, it's things like childcare. They pay five dollars an hour and everything you can eat from the fridge. Thanks a lot, you know, for looking after my kids. Even though our kids are so precious, we entrust them to very low paid, very low skilled people because we don't have the science base. Right. We've put trillions of dollars into making cell phones, but we have almost no successful science of how one person can make another person's life better. 
right? Our education system is a you know, frankly, a disaster. We're still arguing about how to teach people to read. You know, we've been arguing about this for a hundred years and we haven't made much progress on, uh, you know, the phonics versus the whole word versus the whatever else method. And so if we are going to have high status, high value jobs for everyone in the future, we have to do another 30 years of science and then forming new professions and credentials and training uh, and so on so that people can actually function in these new jobs and add value to each other uh, in ways that just wouldn't work. If if it happened now, uh, it would be a catastrophe. Humans have been imagining artificial life since ancient times. Greek poet Hesiod wrote of several There was Talos, an ancient giant bronze man made by the Greek god of invention and blacksmithing, Hephaestus, to protect the island of Crete. He would march around the island, throwing giant rocks at any ship or man who dared approach. There was also Pandora, an artificial evil woman, also created by Hephaestus, meant to punish humans for discovering fire. Stanford Classes scholar Adrian Mayer notes, It's almost as if the myths say, it's great to have these artificial things up in heaven used by gods, but once they interact with humans, we get chaos and destruction. I do want to give a little bit of time on the investing side of of AI as well. So if we can maybe, something that I wanted to cover with you, Matthias, is uh, especially when it comes to AI, we talk a lot about China and the U.S., um, because you uh, are an investment specialist, uh, especially focusing on the Middle East and Africa. I was wondering if in those regions, how important is AI and are there any surprises there that could come up uh, that you know of? Uh, I'd be really interested to, to know your views on that. Uh, sure. It's, I'll start with a very simple answer. It, it's very important. I mean, both uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the UAE ha- have placed AI at the heart of their economic strategy over the next decade. I mean, the latest figures I read, it's estimated $320 billion that could be added to, to these regional economies. So the investor appetite is definitely there. But I think what's even more powerful is that there's the willingness and the wanting for world progression and that they will have there. Uh, I'll tell you a small story. Uh, it's about Sophia. For those of you who don't know who Sophia is, Sophia is the world's first robot that became a citizen. It was granted by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. If you haven't seen any YouTube videos on Sophia, it's quite entertaining. It is a wow effect. It's not the Terminator Blade Runner scary image, but it's something borderline uh, scary in the sense that it's exciting to see how close to human interactivity that, that robot is. So that's one way that the Kingdom actually put in some very nice efforts to promote robotics, to promote artificial intelligence. I mean, the second example I can think of off the top of my mind is when you look at the education that has been done there. In the UAE, for for example, there's the Mohammed bin Zayed University of Artificial Intelligence. It caters to domestic and international students. It has an international board of directors, and it's really bringing it all together and really embracing the future. Could I just put in, I think Sophia is a complete con, 
Um, I, I think this, this it's a, but it, it really is interesting because provided you put the AI in a uh, beautiful looking woman, um, then suddenly everyone thinks it's utterly brilliant. Uh, we've seen this also with an example in uh, an AI artist that basically the AI is suddenly put in a body and humans start connecting with it. It's very interesting to see the emotional reaction uh, uh, of thinking this thing is creative just because it looks like a human. And uh, you know, Sophia could easily, I mean, it's an amazing piece of robotics, but I think we really need to distinguish robotics from, from artificial intelligence. These are two very different things in my mind um, and, and often get conflated. I mean, they're obviously related, but I think uh, it's very interesting to see how often people really buy into AI just because it looks like uh, it's been put in something that looks very human. You're absolutely right. And I think there's a huge uh, emotional element. And if we were to look at the next 10, 20 years, whether you're in the space or you're investing in the space, I think there's going to be massive disagreements on it, right? There's a lot of trade-offs that you're going to have. Are you want to have security or do you want to have privacy? Do you want to have convenience or do, again, do you want to have data privacy? So there's all these things. So I fully agree with you there, Marcus. Yeah. So I, I think the impersonation point that Marcus is making is really important that Using human appearance, physiology, facial structure, and so on to fool people to sort of get past their conscious level and, and plug directly into their subconscious, uh, where we interpret the human form as containing human intelligence. Uh, it's a really, it's a form of deception. In fact, Alan Turing warned us against this. And I'm really pleased to say that the new EU regulations on artificial intelligence, the proposed laws, actually ban the impersonation of human beings. So they require that every AI self-identify as a machine. Uh, and in a sense, it creates a human right to know whether I'm interacting with a human being or not. Uh, and I think that's very, very important. Thank you so much for joining us for such a relevant and topical discussion today. I'm sure we could go on all day and hopefully we'll have a chance to discuss more in depth another time. Again, thanks for your valuable and uh, interesting views today on AI. And I hope we can continue this conversation in other sessions like this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Anjali. Bye-bye. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were Stuart Russell, Marcus Tusatoy, and Matias Gonzalez, moderated by Anjali Bastian Pilai. This series is brought to you by the Pikta Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija Razbetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>